You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. You get comments on Twitter saying, oh, I've won my last five on the chart and you're criticising me. And sometimes <laughs> you get a little computer glitch. It's not actually my fault. They do take it seriously. It's a big deal, FIFA. I mean, the Amazon documentary on Manchester City and all those dressing room scenes, it's something I'm sure the public would like to see a lot more of. Our TV stations would like to broadcast more of. And, and we went into London, no trouble at all. Went from bar to bar. Back then, you signed an autograph here and there. Now, there'd be hell to pay if a Premier League top club went out drinking on the day that their captain had been put into prison. Hi there. Now, Alan Smith has had a long career in football, but it probably means different things to different parts of the footballing population. If you're over 40, you'll remember him as an unselfish, goal-scoring striker for the likes of Leicester, Arsenal and England. If you're in your 30s, you probably associate him with Sky Sports coverage of the Premier League. But if you're a millennial, you'll recognise Alan Smith as one of the co-commentators on the video game FIFA. He's just written a book about his career, and I wanted to explore how he went from the pitch to the virtual pitch via the commentary box. Please rate, review, subscribe to this podcast via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to contact me about digital sports consultancy, there's a link on my website, mrrichardclark.com. Mr. Richard Clark is also where you can find me on all social media. Anyway, let's get back to the task in hand and the many voices of this man. Yeah, this is Alan Smith, formerly of Leicester and Arsenal in England, and now I work for Sky as a co-commentator and help voice FIFA. That sums it up very nicely. Alan, when you <laughs> retired from football, why did you go into media? And was that always the plan? Never the plan, no. It's funny how life serves you a hand that you weren't expecting. Uh, I did anticipate having a go at Brighton, actually. Um because of my background, you know, I'd gone to uni, I'd had a decent education, and I just fancied having a crack at that. So I did do that straight afterwards. You know, Rich, I mean, I started writing for the Evening Standard and then for the, the High and I, the High Brilliant Express. Uh, Where you had a very good yeah. editor, very good sports editor. Very good editor, yeah. He kept me in line, yeah, he did. Taught <laughs> me everything I know. But it was a good... Um, it was a good exercise in terms of thinking about material content every week because when you first start, you think, "What well, uh, I'm going to write about this week? What's happened?" But as you uh, as you get on in it, it, things come to mind more easily. You just think more kind of editorially, journalistically, and uh, and and that was a great help for me. Uh, but the, the TV stuff came along hand in hand. Really, I'd always well, I'd been on Sky occasionally whilst I was playing for Arsenal if I was injured I'd be in the studio and then when I retired I became a regular guest for Arsenal games and then I branched out into doing different things for Sky uh, so together the two you know kept me busy uh, and I was very fortunate in that I never had to look elsewhere for something to do after after football. Just to bring the podcast listeners in, of course, that editor I was talking about was me at the Hybrid Business Express. I was one of your first editors. <laughs> um, and yeah. I do remember, I do remember you ringing me up uh, when we'd have a call about what you're going to write. And you would say, Rich, I'm staring at a blank page. And that was yes. 
that that seemed to be the hardest thing you had and you talked about it there as well expand on it is the concept of finding angles so yes how did you solve that i know you did a a few courses but how did you solve that that finding angles thing i think it was just with practice really and talking to you and uh, and other people um who had a lot more experience than me uh, and you gradually get to grips with it. Um, it's like I'll, I'm back writing now for the Evening Standard uh, once a week, and and you're looking at certain angles on certain matches. Um, and yeah, it, it's just something that you you do kind of get to grips with. You, you learn to look a little bit more deeply into issues, into the situation, and you find a kind of a line to to go down um yeah it just comes with practice really i'd say you just written a book did you write every word of that or did you have a ghost no no i wrote every word uh, if, if i was ever going to write a book it was always going to be me because uh having uh written for the daily telegraph for 20 years and, and as well as all the other the high and iron the standard and that it was something that uh uh i would want to do if I ever got round to doing it, and I'm so pleased that I have gotten round to it. I was encouraged by my family to, uh, and now it's something I'm I'm proud of as a as a timepiece, really, um, of my professional life, uh, and and much different to writing articles, you know, than sports desk will ring you up and say, Alan, could we have a thousand words on the new Arsenal manager? So, as you know, you've got to be quite concise, really. A thousand words isn't a great deal but as I was writing the book I was encouraged by my publisher to just expand on certain stories and on certain themes in a way that I wasn't used to doing um just going into more detail uh so that was the learning process but an enjoyable one I have to say did you have a discipline was it a thousand words a day or 500 words a day or or how did you plan the book no, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, you go into it uh, with these kind of intentions. I, because I started kind of at the start of last summer, uh, I had plenty of time. But of course, when the deadline is over the hill and far away, sometimes you, you put it off, don't you? Um, but as you know, I got within six months of the deadline. You tend to you tend to think about it every day. And some days, if you ha- haven't written, you feel a little bit guilty and you start fretting about it. Um, but some days you'll sit down and a thousand words will, will come out. Other days it won't. Um, that's just how it is as a writer. Um, but I can't imagine, you know, completing a book in about three, three or four months as some as some do. But I suppose if you have to, you, you do do it. Um, for me, I was able to kind of look back on my career in a fairly leisurely way and talk to old teammates and that which was a nice thing to catch up with small faces um and to try and pick their brains on you know past episodes a lot of writers when they're writing a book that they'll have made notes as they would have gone along in over a subject over a period of time you're looking back on a career where you'd have started as a teenager you won't have any notes so do you go have to go back and research yourself and do you trust your memory? I've always worried about that when I've been writing myself and trusting my own memory of things 
20 years ago because sometimes I mm. struggle to remember what I had for breakfast, quite frankly. Yeah. Nothing. I mean, in typical, I'm, I mean, first of all, I'm writing about my childhood and then about my year at our church, the non-league clubs and where I joined Leicester. And, you know, we're talking early 80s here. It's a long time ago, but I think the, the bullet points of those times, you do remember. And then the more you think about them, little details come to mind too. Um, so that that was that was really interesting. Just to cast your mind back, uh, how it was back then, uh, and I tried to give a flavour of what life was like um, in the early 80s, uh, particularly from a, a footballing aspect, how, how much different it was then. Um, but yeah, it, it's... Some, yeah, you're right, though. Sometimes you think something happens in a certain match and it's important that you do research it. Because um, I remember talking about Joe Jordan uh, elbow, elbowing me in the throat in this one match. And I was convinced it was he was playing for Manchester United. And then when I looked up the date, it was that he was playing for Southampton at the time. And I got mixed up with an episode when Gordon McQueen for Manchester United elbowed one of my teammates, Peter Easter, in the jaw and smashed his jaw in several places. So you just have to be careful that you get your facts right. You were always considered a very mild-mannered player. I think you only got the one booking in your career, am I right? About yes, that? I did. Cup yeah. final, 93, yeah. Was that the, your only booking in the cup final, 93? It was, yeah. Although I did... I'm sure I remember an episode for Leicester when the ref actually called me over and he, he appeared to write my name in the book and then it didn't come through because, you know, the club uh, always get a letter from the FA to say, you know, Alan Smith was booked in this match. I think it was at Ipswich. Whether the ref changed his mind on the night, I don't know. <laughs> but it, didn't, it didn't count. And my only yellow card was... Uh, in the FA Cup final in 93 yeah, against Sheffield Wednesday for delaying the taking of a free kick on gentlemanly conduct uh, it went down as and um, I, I received that letter and I got it framed because it, it, it's nice yeah. well, <laughs> uh, well my point is that it's, it's ironic that your one booking is for, is for ungentlemanly contact because you are known as a gentlemanly footballer and relatively placid mild mannered and Yet, as a as a as a as a commentator, a, a, a writer, a pundit, whatever you want to call yourself, you have to have strong opinions, and you may be in a position where you're going to criticise your friends, or maybe you have to accentuate a negative point in order to make your column interesting. This is what journalists do. Did you find yourself in those tricky positions at all, either writing the book or early in your journalism career? Not so much writing the book because the episodes I talk about I'd already um, written. I mean, the one outstanding situation was the uh, brawl at Old Trafford in 2003, September 2003. Uh, there's been a few brawls at Old Trafford, hasn't there? I was involved in one of them. Uh, but uh, this one, I was there, well, I was there principally for the Telegraph. I went up and then I was called into the Sky Studios because... Alan Shearer, he was down to be the guest along with Steve Bruce, but he had to pull out last minute. So I filled in and um, at the end of a largely lifeless game, you know, it all kicked off and I felt Arsenal were in the wrong and I criticised them afterwards um, on air. I felt that uh, they overstepped the mark, they'd get in trouble with the FA. 
then after the programme had finished, I rushed down to the press box and, and wrote similar sentiments for the Telegraph. Uh, and it, it caused a bit of a stir because, you know, a, a, a player, a person uh, heavily associated with Arsenal had come out and criticised them. Um, and at that point, I started, I stopped writing for the Arsenal magazine because uh, certain players, Patrick Vieira, I think, as the captain, felt it wouldn't be right for me to criticise him one day and come in in the next to the training ground to interview a player, which I did once a month. But, you know, although it was all fairly upsetting at the time, the fact Arsenal fans had the hump with me for criticising, you know, the club, it did create some distance between my former life and my present job. Uh, and I think you have to have that distance to um, attain a bit of uh, credibility in uh, in the media world, um, so in hindsight, it was it was kind of a watershed moment for me. Um, I think that one that had to happen. And social media now makes those conversations more immediate, more passionate, more tribal. And has that changed the way situations where you'll have to have a strong opinion, how they are filtered out and reacted to? The fact that fans will come on and talk to you on social media about about uh, an incident if that 93 incident happened now you know you would be a you would be in the midst of a twitter storm for mm. eight or ten hours <laughs> and then it'll die down yes but, but you would yeah, be yeah. you you would be you know uh there'd be your picture on the on the daily mail newspaper website for, for a bit yeah um so is that is that is, is it different now and how have you coped with that with that change in technology well you can't let it bother you, you you've, you've got to do your job in, in exactly the same manner you've got to speak your mind um say what you see you can't in the back of your mind you can't be thinking oh one or two people are going to be upset about this on twitter i mean after a co-commentary game uh for sky after a particularly big match you know you know, one set of fans or the other are going to be giving you some stick. Uh, I might have a quick glance afterwards, but honestly, I don't get too deeply into it because you're never going to please all the people all of the time, are you, as the saying goes. And um, you've got to stay true to yourself. Um, you know, whatever you say these days, somebody's going to have an objection on social media. And it is important that you remain honest and, and you say what you see. And if anything, I've probably become a bit more forthright than I was as a player in my second career. You know, I always wished I had a bit of an extra edge, a bit, bit more aggression. I'm not saying I'm aggressive now, but um, I always felt that was something that just held me back from going to the next level, having that little streak of nastiness. So in this, I've always been an honest sort, you know, I've always kind of answered a question in a straight fashion and honestly, and I've tried to, you know, keep that going um, over the last 20 odd years. Yeah. So just to go back, are you saying that you wish you'd had a bit more of an edge as a player? Yes. 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 I say in the book, I mean, I always used to look at Mark Hughes and think, Oh, I wish I could be a bit more like him. You know, he, he had that nasty streak. And I, as you said earlier, I am a fairly classic character. It takes a lot to get me riled, uh, and sometimes that's that could be to the detriment of my game. But you know, you can't change who you are, what you are, no matter how hard you try. Um, that's just me, 
And I do feel in certain situations, you know, when the pressure was on, Anfield 89, Copenhagen, I was able to kind of go into it with a cool head and produce my best football. So there's pluses and minuses to that. Yeah, just building on that and slightly digressing, I've been reading books on control of emotions and control of emotions as a sports person is is very, very important. And and if anything, you're saying, well, you want more edge and yet, yeah, you, you're turning around and, and, and talking about Copenhagen and and Anfield 89, where you, know, you deliver the pass to Mickey Thomas. You scored that goal from 30 yards or, or so to win the Cup Winners' Cup. Uh, it seems to get further away every year, by the way, that goal. Um, and um, uh, but, but, you know, even though you wanted the edge, control of emotions seems to be a crucial thing in sport and also actually in journalism when in, the, in a world of Twitter rows, People can ruin their careers with a with a bad tweet when they lose their emotions. And sports, sports, the sporting universe seems to have got a lot more angsty, a lot more emotion driven, uh, a lot more peaks and troughs. And it seems to me control of emotions, both in sports journalism and on on the sporting field, is more important than ever. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, in the punditry world, and it's not a word I, I'm not fond of. Uh, there's room for all sorts of different characters. Obviously, people that can uh, let off steam, go over the top, sometimes exaggerate things um, with uh, with an ambition to create headlines, make a name for themselves. Um, maybe that's just their their character. But there's also a place for somebody a bit more level-headed, a bit more controlled, trying to be a bit fairer, perhaps to both sides. And I probably fall into that category. But it is a more sensationalist world now. There's no doubt about it. Um, it seems sometimes like you have got to be that way to get your voice heard. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I'll go back to that point. You, you've got to be true to yourself. You are what you are. Uh, and if whether that is or isn't good enough in whatever field you're in. So uh, for me, thankfully, so far, it's worked OK. Let's talk about moving into co-commentary with Sky. Now, there's... Courses you can take in sports journalism or in journalism per se, and increasingly in sports journalism as a, a specialisation. There aren't really courses in co-commentary. They just pluck uh, an articulate ex-player to comment. So how did you how did you learn that job, and how did you get into that job? I suppose to start with. Well, I never thought I'd be any good at it. Which, as I say in the book, is typical me. I had a lack of faith in my own ability, but. <laughs> I've been doing some, I've been doing various stuff, studio appearances, uh, stuff for Soccer Saturday in Vision around the grounds, you know, talking to Jeff Stanley. Uh, I've done that for about six years, but our lead match commentator, Tony Mills, um, once suggested that I have a go at co-commentary. And I thought, I said, no, nah, Tony, it's, they don't want to listen to my whining drummage all, you know, it's not going to go down well at all. Uh, but I did have a go, and uh, I'm still having a go. It, <laughs> it's such a subjective job that that you can easily get on people's nerves. You're right, people are dipped in, and they've got to hit the ground running. They don't get too much advice. I mean, I've had advice along the way by colleagues at Sky, but I think you do have to work it out for yourselves, kind of develop your style. Imagine what the viewer wants to hear. The golden rule is don't tell us what we can see. Tell us what we can't see, which isn't always easy because I think 
supporters are probably more knowledgeable now. So it is difficult coming up with something that is going to make them think and sit up. But um, I think it's just important not to talk too much. Uh, If you haven't got anything interesting to say, keep stump. Less is more at times in co-commentary. But it's uh, it's a great job. I mean, it's a great job to be involved in. But you're always you're always aware that you want coming away from upsetting people or even losing your job if it's a particularly poorly chosen comment. Um, live TV, there's no second chances. But it certainly gives you an adrenaline rush. It's an exciting job to do. Once that first whistle goes, you pick up the the microphone and uh, and you're away. So it's one I enjoy, yeah. Uh, although, as I say, at, at the start, I never thought it would be something that would suit me. How do you prepare for a game? Do you research? Do you do notes yourself? And, and we're talking on a Friday morning here, so if you've got a game on a Saturday Sunday, I'm not sure what you're doing. Where are you in the process? What's the what's the timetable? Well, it's International Week this weekend. I, I did a match last night, actually, uh, for the World Feed Um for a Sky game, we'll have a stats team who will send us through stats for every match. Now, I'll glance through them for the, for the various bullet points. I will have watched the previous games of the two teams. Obviously, who's playing well, who's scoring, what happened, any any big moments. So I don't have to have such an in-depth grasp of the stats in the way that the commentator does. I just need to have an overview of it and my job more is describing what's happening during the 90 minutes, really, trying to provide some insight. The, the, you know, there's a bit of research that, that goes on. I'll do I'll do a couple of hours uh, the day before, whatever. Um, and then when you get to the ground, you'll talk to people, if you're lucky. It's a bit harder these days to talk to people within football clubs. Um, but it's always handy just to get a bit of an inside track on on what's going on without betraying any confidences once you're commentating. But, um, yeah, it's a variation of things that go into uh, that 90 minutes. Interesting enough, you talk about it being harder to talk to people at grounds. I know that commentators do. They talk to lots of people. In my role, my former role at Arsenal, used to talk to me a lot about the things I'd seen and the things I'd done. When I was working for Major League Soccer and and looking after, uh, in Major League Soccer, and looking after the communications for one of the teams there, we provided broadcasters, a team of maybe six broadcasters, and half an hour, three quarters an hour with the coach and three or four players ahead of a big game. They actually had set time on the Friday, which would be just chatting. And it's it's yeah. interesting. I found it interesting that in in America, that was set aside specific time just to chat, which would provide colour to the commentary. And yet in the Premier League, the skies of this world, you guys are, are grabbing a comment here, grabbing a comment there. It's um, I just found it an interesting contrast. Yeah, I mean, obviously in the states, the the access. I mean, it's something that's been a bit of a bugbear of the media here for a number of years getting greater access into football clubs. Um, I think there have been conversations this week even, I mean, the Amazon documentary uh, on Manchester City and all those dressing room scenes, it's something I'm sure the public would like to see a lot more of. Um, TV stations would like to broadcast more of. It's it's a bit sacrosanct still, the dressing room, what goes on in there. But um, 
I think as time goes on, we will see a little bit more. We will delve deeper into what goes on because it's the next step, isn't it? Um, everybody wants to um, kind of uh, get inside a place, their favourite club, and learn more about it. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting over the next few years how, how all that develops in this country. Do we follow countries like the States where they're a lot more amenable? What changes have you seen with the way the Sky cover a game? You know, has your has the coverage changed significantly? Obviously, they're monstering it from the start with new angles and very much a game changer when they when they came in. Has it has it changed dramatically the the technology and the and the and the way that Sky cover a game for you as a co commentator? I mean, um, I wouldn't say so really. Um... Obviously, there's a, we have a lot of cameras at, at, at our live games, or maybe match directors. Their their styles from, from person to person would change in terms of the shots they show. Uh, I think stats come into it more now. You know, the number of times a particular side has, has lost after going behind or won after going behind. You know, the number of corners in a game. All sorts of stats we flag up on screen during a match possession, uh, shots on target, off target, um, all that, because people are probably a bit more interested in stats now, but you have to be careful that you don't overload them because it does wind people up as well. We did go down the 3D route, uh, which didn't really uh, succeed, um, so that's been left behind. Uh, it's difficult to reinvent the wheel, really. I think, you know, you just want to give the viewer uh, a good view of the game as it were um, make sure he sees everything he wants to see um, uh, and you know I think we do that pretty well um, but uh, in terms of how things are going to I mean the, the, the picture quality HD Super HD 4K all the rest of it it gets better and better um, but um, no it's, it, it's I'm, I'm pleased to be involved with a company in Sky that's Bit at the forefront of um, technology and uh, you know pioneering different methods, uh, and we're always trying to continue to do that. Getting back to your commentary, and you mentioned your Birmingham accent. Have you changed that in any way? Altered your diction in any way, or been asked to? Because you hear about, for example, female sports broadcasters or female newscasters lower their voice or felt they've had to lower their voice in order to give themselves greater gravitas. And when you started, there weren't too many co-commentators or commentators with uh, strong or strongish regional accents. Yeah, I mean, I don't think my accent comes across as much whilst I'm commentating as it might do just talking to you. But what I am conscious of is just lifting my voice I've got a broadcasting voice, which I use as soon as I pick up the lip mic. Uh, and it's just bringing it up a couple of levels, you know. Um, it's something, uh, you know, that I've learned to do to just inject that little bit of urgency into things that you say to make it punchier. And that's all about listening, listening back to previous commentaries and trying to learn from them. But um, some people do say, oh, your commentating voice is different to your <laughs> colloquial one, you know, your conversational one, which in a way is a compliment because, you, you know, it's a performance that you're giving. And you, you're always anxious 
a big moment in a match, always anxious to put the right words in the right tone to those pictures because they're going to be used hundreds of times in in the next few years. So you don't want to mess it up. You want to uh, reflect the drama of the moment. And, and that's always something in your mind just before the replay comes on. You mentioned listening back to your commentaries or watching yourself back. Do you do you still do that? Because I know people do that at the start of their career, but do you still do it now? Every now and again, every now and again, I, I, I should do it more, but I think like many people, they don't like listening to themselves too much. But it is a useful tool, definitely, because sometimes you can just fall into habits using the same phrase or just having a little verbal tick that you're not aware of. So I think it is important, and I do try and do it. Martin Tyler, you're you're paired with him most often. You're seen as a duo. Um, how did that develop? Um. Well, Martin's been our lead commentator for hundreds of years. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And uh, when Andy Gray uh, ceased working for the company, I kind of took over his role. And I've kind of been in and out. Kind of Gary Neville now would be seen as our lead co-commentator. But I've worked with Martin, you know, over 10, 15 years now. And, of course, we voice FIFA together. Uh, We've got a a really good relationship uh, and he's top of the tree. I'm talking about finding words for the pictures. There's nobody better out there than him and you can learn an awful lot from that. It's been an education for me working with Martin. It really has. Do you need a strong personal relationship, personal friendship with a lead commentator as a co-commentator to really make it work over a period of time? Well, you don't need to be uh, enemies, but no, I don't think so. I, I think it's that chemistry once uh, you're on air, once you're talking. Um, as long as that's okay, you, you can rub along. But oh my, I get on really well with all the commentators I work with at, at Sky. They're all good lads. Um, they're, all, they're all different in their styles. And you learn to fit in with those styles. And, and that, that's another skill. Um, and it, it, it's a skill I'm really pleased to have... Uh, kind of got to grips with um, because after my career you always want to be able to get your teeth stuck into something else not forever be known as simply a footballer and uh, this kind of work does require a lot of effort and thinking about um, to make sure that you do it to the best of your ability So FIFA, let's talk about FIFA what has that added to your career being the voice of FIFA since FIFA 11, FIFA 12, was it? 11, I think it was. It, well, it's given me a bit of kudos amongst 10 to 15-year-olds, <laughs> uh, people that would never have known me as a footballer, probably never heard me commentate on Sky, but so many times I'll go to a ground and uh, a little boy or whatever with his dad or want a selfie with me, uh, and it's all down to FIFA because... Uh, I sell 10 million copies a year. The last count, it's just got a huge reach. So in terms of profile, it's been brilliant. Absolutely uh, fantastic for me. Uh, yeah, when I, when I first um, started working on it, I, I went in and I auditioned. They were looking at a few people. I, I got the gig and um, the fact it was with Martin Tyler made it, made it easier because I already knew him. But 
it's yeah, it's been a wonderful thing in my life, I'd have to say. So many people uh, listen to you and, you and you get comments on Twitter saying, oh, I've won my last five on the trot and you're criticising me. And, and sometimes <laughs> you get a little computer glitch. It's not actually my fault. But, uh, they do take it seriously. It, it's a big deal to you for, for uh, a lot of people. Um, so to be involved in that, yeah, it, it's been quite something. And the process for that, I'm right in thinking they give you scenarios but you're unscripted, so you you just get a scenario and then then voice to that and make it up as you go along. But basically, yeah, they they try they want it to stay as close to our sky commentary as you possibly can in terms of it sounding natural and not scripted. So they'll give us a big uh, pile of scenarios that we're going to be dealing with that day, but we will put our own words to those scenarios, whether it's a, a free kick that just goes over the bar from 20 yards or a, a bad tackle which gets the player sent off. And we need to um, give them about four, five, six different versions in order to give the gamer um, you know, more options and he, he doesn't keep hearing the same phrase. I think that's something that happened in the early years. The same phrases kept popping up and that tended to get on people's nerves. But We've recorded so much now um, that hopefully that, that doesn't happen quite so often. But, yeah, you've always got to be thinking and, and having a, a decent vocabulary is important to describe the same situation six different ways. It does kind of stretch your mind a little bit. And after five hours in the recording studio, you, you know you've been in there, but it is great fun. Five hours. How many days of five hours long is it? With you and Martin Tyler in a in a in a windowless well, room. I was hearing as well. It's... Uh, we have got a window, but yeah, we're not allowed to open it because uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the, the recording uh, effect. But um, we do about twelve days a year, um, which obviously all get added on to what we've already recorded. Um, but they're always thinking of different. Um, different facets, different things to, to put into the recording. And and I go back to that point. They, they want to make it as close to uh, a normal commentary on a live game as possible. So we've been recording a lot more banter, as it were, just discussing something that's happened a couple of minutes before during a lull in play, stuff that you would hear normally on Sky, which you haven't always heard on TV. So it's little details like that that um, they put a lot of thought into. Do you play the game? <laughs> Have you ever played it? Uh, no, not often. No, I've, my nephew plays it and that, but uh, I, I don't too often. Just concentrate <laughs> on uh, putting my voice on it. <laughs> and are you obviously you're the 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 commentators for England, but are you English language? I.e., going to America. Are you are you the commentators that people would use. In English in America, or are there specific American commentators? Do you know that? No, no. I think if um, they're playing the Premier League, certainly Americans will hear our voices. And it's funny, even foreign-speaking uh, countries, uh, when they are playing a Premier League game, they feel it's more authentic. A lot of people prefer to have the English commentary because their their English is probably at a good level anyway. No matter where you go in the world, sometimes people will recognise your voice. I remember being in Israel one year and um, 
this lad came around the corner with a big smile on his face. He'd heard me talking. I was doing an interview for Sky. And he, he, he just kind of said, ah, oh, FIFA, FIFA. And he was smiling at me. He couldn't really speak English. But clearly, he uh, had heard he was listening to the English commentary on FIFA. So uh, it does spread far, far and wide. <laughs> fantastic uh, it's so important actually i mean the, i mean gaming certainly my experience in the u.s as well so many people cottoned on to soccer through gaming and no players through gaming it's it's a very very important window and being the voice of that is is immensely important it's such a an important st- strategic gig for you i would think because uh it just does open you up to that massive new audience yeah, yeah, no, it does, it does. And of course, you know, kids are so much more knowledgeable about the game now. They could tell you who plays right back for Borussia Mönchengladbach, you know, because they just go through it on FIFA. And when I was young, you'd have a sketchy knowledge of, of foreign football, you know, who played up front for Real Madrid, whatever. But nowadays, they know all the stats. Um they do have an incredible depth of knowledge, uh, which uh, which is great. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is. It uh, it just continues to grow and grow, um, and um, they do put so much effort into it to improve the technology every year. There's certainly clever people over in Vancouver, Canada, where EA Sports HQ is. Um, how they how they do it all, I will never know. When you look at your career coming out of a, a major team with England behind you and but moving into journalism with the te- with Telegraph obviously a major major newspaper moving into Sky how hard would that be to do now because it seems to be albeit there's more football on television there's more opportunities and more channels um it's also a very crowded market for commentators and players trying to get in yeah yeah i mean I think I think the writing side, although obviously journalism and the opportunities have shrunk as, as circulation and newspapers go down and there's less money to spend. A player retiring who, who wants to write stuff himself, I think he'd get a chance to do that. A player of a certain profile. Um, yeah, it's a good question about telly. It's, it is a crowded market. Um, I think a lot of people, once they've retired, feel it might be quite... Um, an easy, quite a cushy, enjoyable line of work to go into. And if they do go in with that impression, invariably they'll fail because you do still have to put a lot of work into it. But there are more outlets, um, more TV stations, obviously all, all the stuff online, social media stuff. Um, but uh, you, you've always got somebody, somebody snapping at your heels, somebody... Uh, uh, a little bit fresher out the game who wants to do your job and, and that's why you, you've got to make sure you keep doing it to the best of your ability but uh, yeah I, I was fortunate I think you know I, I got a chance in newspapers and I got a chance in TV but of course having that chance is one thing making the most of it is another and uh, to, to make it stretch um, over a period of Two decades, two decades or more, you've, you know, you've got to have a, a bit of de- determination, a bit of resolve to to keep on putting the work in. 
And the media landscape as a whole, the way that football is reported in this country, obviously, you know, the pre the Premier League, wh whatever you think about it, it's made, and Sky's coverage of the Premier League has made football so much more important than it used to be in this country, and so much more of a story. What do you think about the way the stories surrounding the game has changed? Because they're earning so much money, they're massive celebrities. There's lots of pressure on them. Social media might mean someone would film them doing something they shouldn't do, things you'd have got away with at your time. So it's it's just an entirely different environment for a player, isn't it? And the stories that are told about them. It is. And I don't envy them because of that, uh, the lads today. Obviously, they're earning fantastic astronomical sums, but... I think in terms of enjoyment, it has been pared back a little bit for the reasons you give there, the private life, you know, to, to go outside their homes, they're, they're under scrutiny straight away, people taking pictures on their phones. Um, we didn't have that. Uh, and, and, and as a result, I think some of the lads today might just withdraw a little bit um, behind their you know, gated mansions, if you will, not um, not go out to the same extent. I don't mean going out and getting drunk or anything, but they they, they kind of shy away from um, the public because they never quite know what's going to happen, which is a shame because it should be a, a joyful profession. When we were players, I, I remember famously the day that Tony Adams got sent to prison for drink driving, and we were due to have our Arsenal Christmas party that day, and we all convened at Steve Bold's house in St Albans and thought, well, what do you reckon, lads? Should we go out under the circumstances? And after a five-minute chat, we went, yeah, yeah, we'll go out. It's what Tony would have wanted, you know. Let, let's have a drink on tone type of thing. And, and we went into London, no trouble at all. You know, went from bar to bar. Back then, you signed an autograph here and there. Now, there'd be hell to pay if uh, a Premier League top club went out drinking on the day that their captain had been put into prison. So different worlds now, different worlds. And, and I'm pleased that I did live during an era when you could relax a little bit more in the outside world. Yeah, you get hammered for that. I mean, every Wednesday morning there have been stories in the newspapers given the Tuesday Club that I'm not sure how big a member you were of the Tuesday Club, but um, it's no, quite well, famous I, I in Arsenal circles. I was a part-time member, yeah. I, well, I say I was a part-time member. I'd probably go out for most of those Tuesdays. Sometimes I'd go out for a couple of hours. Sometimes I'd go out for a bit longer. Only rarely would it be three o'clock in the morning that I'd return. Uh, so I kind of dipped my toe in and out of it because I never wanted to miss out on stuff. You know, the lads are going, the lads are going out having a good time uh, and I want to be part of that. But I wasn't one of the kind of founder members who, uh, who were there till the bitter end. I think it was a... Uh, an illustration of our togetherness as, as, as much as anything else. Um, most times, a good portion of that, that team would, would go out. And as you say, a lot would drift off after a couple of drinks. But George Graham never minded it, as long as we didn't show ourselves off. He knew we were off out on the town, because we'd always bring a change of clothes into training. Train at Highbury, have a physical. And, um, and then, um, yeah, off we went. Maybe a, a couple of pints of Guinness in the Gunners or on the Bank of Friendship on the Blackstock Road and uh, go, go into town. But, yeah, different times. 
what ambitions do you still want to fulfil in your media career now? I think to continue it, really, which, you know, you might say isn't an ambition in itself, but it, it is because it is a, such a competitive arena. I, I, I dearly want to continue uh, co-commentating. I want to continue writing and, to, and to, to have a voice, really, in the game, a voice that's respected. Because the further away you get as an ex-player, you know, it's easy to be dismissed. Uh, you know, as an old fogey, not in touch with the modern game. And I'm always conscious of not giving it the better in my day attitude. Always looking at things from the modern player's perspective. Trying to stay relevant. Um, that can get harder. It's such a wonderful sport, you know, job to be involved in. You know, people say, oh, I'd like to retire when I'm 60, whatever. I, I just want to go on for as long as I possibly can. I mean, why would you want to stop? doing this job it's fantastic so that would be my ambition mate but you've reinvented yourself as a media uh, a football media person a commentator a journalist having invented yourself primarily as a footballer it's almost like that third stage isn't it because you're saying you've got to stay relevant you've got to find some way to continually reinvent yourself and and that's and that's hard, isn't it? And and we, we all know that footballers struggle with that first reinvention. What do I do after football? And mm. when you're a commentator, if you, if, even if you've successfully done that, you've got to kind of continually have these mini reinventions. It, it's a hard trick to pull off. Possibly, yeah. Um, I think it helps a little bit if, if you're not envisioning, if it's just your voice. Um, and as long as you can do the job. Um, well, then, you know, you should be on fairly safe ground. I mean, for everyone, the tap on the shoulder will come eventually and uh, we no longer require your services. But all you can do, I don't think you can think about reinventing yourself at, at the stage of my career I am now. You've, you've just got to keep doing what you have been doing, being honest, not compromising on, on what you think, on your principles. And if, if that's not good enough, it's not good enough. Um, you know, I'll go back to that point about being honest to yourself and, and just doing your very best, which is what I tried to do in my football career too. And just finally, I'll, I'll end on the book. Uh, how, how proud are you of it, I suppose? And, and how do you feel now it's out? You've had the initial reaction to it. It's putting yourself out there in a different way. Uh, you talk so much about being honest to yourself. Well, is it an honest reflection of you your life where you are what what you did and hopefully where you're going to as well yeah no i, I have been honest in the book i've spoken about subjects that i hadn't really aired before my relationship with ian wright uh, had its moments um my relationship with george graham which ended on a slightly sour note one day in the dressing room at Highbury, but um I've just tried to give an account of my, my career in as honest a way as I possibly can and fair a way too. Uh, and I, I think and hope people will enjoy it. People love a bit of nostalgia, so I've tried to provide some of that. Spoken about the modern game too, tried to give both sides because I've seen both sides. But yeah, I think Arsenal fans will, will learn one or two things about me, but that maybe all come as a surprise that they didn't know before. Because I've always been one to kind of keep my head under the radar, not to make a fuss, not to create headlines. I didn't go out of my way to create headlines in writing the book, but um, as I say, people might discover things that they didn't previously know.
I'll put links to it on the show notes. And Alan Smith, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Please follow at Sports Content Strategy on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, it's Sports Content SP. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog and sign up for his newsletter at mrrichardclark.com. 